You're listening to ASI Attitudes of Sexual Integrity Season Zero Down to the Gritty Foundation Episode 4 Yes, that is some vintage punk rock from the band Bad Brains over there in Washington, D.C. A great music selection to kick off this show and my talk with Jeff today. Bad Brains was what I was accused of having as a kid, right? Like, that's what you got. You got rust. You got bad brains. That's what it is. That's what's wrong with you. You got bad brains. Not that any of my relatives sounded like that or were from New York or I don't know what that accent is. It just it just came out of me just then. So forgive me for that. It's good to talk to you guys today. Uh, email from Mr. C on the last podcast was pretty intense and he's doing much better. Uh, just had a few email exchanges with him. Uh, some other support from some other listeners I sent his way. And uh, another listener, all right. See what I did there? No, it was one listener that wanted me to pass on a, a message and, and to Mr. C, and I, I sent some of that along. Um, but it wasn't a bunch of people. I know that there was some good feedback from that episode. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I felt like clarifying that. I'm not sure why. I guess maybe my uh, that voice in my head of... of shame or condemnation is going see you're a liar (laughs) it wasn't multiple listeners it was one listener i don't know why everybody sounds like uh mickey from rocky right rocky's trainer mickey just you gotta get up rock you gotta get up i watched creed uh the movie creed was was really good i liked that movie too you know I, i like some of these stories about how we push ourselves um but in the area of sexual addiction, there there becomes other layers to this that we're we're struggling with, and some of it is it's shame, it's shame, right? Um, guilt, the difference between the two, uh, and maybe the fact that it's a coach in my head that sounds like Mickey, right? He's, you got this live event coming up in May, Russ. You gotta get up. You gotta get on the treadmill and train. You haven't done any public speaking in years, Russ. You gotta... <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a therapist appointment tomorrow, so that will be good. Maybe we can work some of these things out. Uh, the difference between shameful feelings and value, right? Guilty feelings of observations that we need a course correct for, and then these these feelings of shame, like, I'm just bad, like, I can't, I'm, I'm just, no, I'm the bad one, right? There's a difference between feeling like you are bad and realizing that you need a course correction. It, it's, it's some of the tension that I live in still today. I'm getting better at it, but anyway, that's where I'm at. Mr. C's story, uh, and he's anonymous, that's why I call him Mr. C. His story is something that I wanted to share about my own story and how 
you know, just behavior modification on its own is not a long-term solution and maybe even dangerous at some point. And you can check that out as well as that's some of the stuff that Jeff and I talk about too. I cut this talk in half because it's pretty long. I may have, it may be thirds. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, But we get into some of this, this talk too and the continuing conversation of, you know, behavior modification and shame. Dealing with the roots of this thing is really important. And that's why I, I thank Mr. C so much for sharing his story because it was it was powerful um, and it helped me also explain to the audience something that I wanted to explain, but I really didn't have the words. And then uh, he writes this email, this... And I'm like, oh, my God, that's how I felt and feel to a certain degree with my some of my own mania. Um, so, yes, that was episode three, um, reading Mr. C's email and talking about the the brown spot. Um, <laughs> listen to that episode if you want to solve that dissonance on your own. Uh, before I get into this talk with a couple of uh, vintage punk rock guys, <laughs> me and, and Jeff, uh, not that I'm a musician, I'm just a consumer. I just like the music, all right? I have no idea how to play any kind of instrument. Uh, I can play a stereo, that's about it. The last episode I talked about, you know, looking for sp- sponsors and co-producers, um, donations, right? I don't watch your donations. Well, this thing takes money to keep afloat is basically what I'm trying to say. So reaching out for, I know it's your life energy that is spent. And uh, I appreciate any anything that you guys give. So I don't want to sound like a self-righteous ass. Um, I may have sounded that way on the last episode. So I'm just going to clarify on that. And this show today uh, made possible by Lyft. So as a driver for both Uber and Lyft, uh, Lyft has a campaign where instead of me asking you to give me money, I can uh, give you $50 worth of free rides. See, how cool is that? Instead of saying, give to the cause, open your wallets and give to this mission, um, I- I'm-, I'm giving you money. <laughs> this is a- Wait, there's a concept. Uh, I don't know. See, there I go sounding like a self-righteous ass again. Somewhere there's a pastor going, I do that every Sunday, knock it off, right? <laughs> Just Anyway, back back on topic. Now, there's kind of a catch. Last time I checked, it was $5 off your first 10 rides. So that's how it works. And listen, I know, all right? You sound like a pitch man, Russ. <laughs> okay. Uh, I never thought I'd hear myself be a pitch man for this podcast or ministry or whatever this is but i really do like this service and i am giving away a promo code um not just because i drive for them all right but it is a way as if you've ever had to take a taxi in your life i've had some cab rides that were hideous and horrendous and i know the listeners to the show who who may be driving cabs i'm sure you're great Right, you're, you're, you're doing a great job. You should become a Lyft and an Uber driver is is what you should do because then you're self-employed. You're not working for the man 
and you may actually make more money uh, by providing rides for way less than what the taxis companies charge. And you'll never have to handle cash again, right? Worry about getting robbed. And we get to rate every one of our passengers with one to five stars. As well as you, the passenger, you get to rate every ride that you take in a lift with one to five stars. Same with Uber, too. But I'm talking about Lyft today. So, see, I'm not here to shame the taxi cab company's employees. I'm not I'm not trying to crap on the taxi drivers. It's just it's just the difference between the VCR and a right. Um this is old technology, is what I'm saying. So, th- this is awesome and you're going to love it. And if you do want to become a driver, you can use this promo code depending on the city to get an extra bonus uh, of 350 to like $500 for becoming a driver. But for you passengers, you know, you're going out to the bar or whatever you're doing, you need to ride home effectively, low cost. It's, it's awesome. And that is my personal promo code that will get you $50 off. I will also have it in the description in the podcast. So if you scroll down and whatever you're using, iTunes or Stitcher, it'll be in there. You can cut and paste it or write it down or whatever, but that's $50 of free rides. And listen, the beauty of this whole thing is that if you download the app, use that promo code and actually use the service, um, that's a $20. It's a twenty. It's $20 every time one of you guys uses that code uh, that goes to help keeping this thing alive. And Uber? Well, I'm trying to focus on Lyft today, but here's my Uber code too. It's 8J69G. That's what? 8J as in jackalope. 8, 6, and G as in greyhound. Um... That's my uh, Uber code, and that will get you $20. So see what I just did? I gave you $70 worth of free rides if you've never used um, Uber or Lyft before. So there you go. You're welcome. All right, let's kick this off. Uh, Jeff Betker is a rock legend in the Seattle area, all right? Okay, no, not like Jimi Hendrix is a rock legend in the Seattle area or Nirvana, but you you know what I'm saying, all right? Independent music, this guy has been connected. He, he knows his stuff. He is uh, involved in a nonprofit called Artist Reformation, which is uh, in the Seattle area helping in, to encourage artists in the city. And his uh, current band is called Dry Bones. That's D-R-Y-B-N-Z, if you want to look him up there. And I'll stop running my yap. And on the other side of this 90-pound wuss bumper, he was also in that band in the 90s, we will kick this thing off. Jeff Becker. Betger. Betger. Yep. Like bet and then grr. Right. This is the first time I'm meeting you. I'm not a gambling man, though. (laughs) I'm not a gambling man. uh, um, Thanks for being on the podcast, man. This is the first time I'm actually meeting you in person. 
I know we've yeah. had some chats online and Facebook and that whole thing, but it's cool to actually be in the same room with you. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, Jeff was in a band, was it in the 90s, 90 Pound Wuss? Yes. Yeah. How old were you? Um, I was in uh, 21, maybe. Wow. I know that I was definitely 21 in the band. I don't know if we started much before then. There was something recently about the old uh, post-punk Christian bands, and, and you made the list of the top 10 or 20? Yeah, bands. somewhere on there. I did see that. I think it was in Relevant Magazine. Yeah, Relevant Magazine. And it, I, I think it was pop-punk, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Our most notorious album. I would... Is pop-punk definitely in some senses of it, but we weren't um, polished like most of those bands and then there was a little there was other elements that made it more grindy and and um i guess we call it crusty punk or gutter punk or there was some anarcho punk qualities to it as well there's so many subgenres of punk rock right. but our first one was definitely had a few songs that people liked more that were in that kind of vein but then by late by the time we ended the, our last record that we did, it was definitely post punk. I would call it post punk for sure. Right. It had synthesizers and was definitely more influenced by Bauhaus than Dead Kennedys, maybe. But um, no, Dead Kennedys even they still weren't influenced by then. They were <laughs> slinky guitars and they're like especially plastic surgery disasters. <laughs> so, anyways, I, I like and Black Flag. But anyways, you get, get we were we would play because most of the other bands that um, were on Tooth and Nail Records when we were on on that record label, which was the whole career of Night Bombers, we uh, we played with bands like MXPX and Goaty Hook and all these other bands that were more polished and clean and had a poppier sound. As you know, they would sing and I would like, <laughs> scream, but it wasn't quite hardcore because we didn't have the the metal stuff going on that hardcore was doing at the time. But we might have been more hardcore in the minor threat right. um, aspect of, you know, 80s hardcore. I guess we were more more like that. So, pop punk, hardcore, some sort of weird thing. It was a punk rock band. Right. Fun. And you were, you were involved in a lot of different bands, right? Yeah, after that, um, my friends and I, who live, all lived together, and they were in bands on Tooth & Nail... Two, their bands had broken up, and we all got together. Two of us from 90 Pound Wuss, me and a guy named John Spaulding, rest in peace, he deceased. He died of cancer in 2008, I believe. Um, but anyways, he, uh, um, him and I, and then Matt Johnson and Doug Lorig, who were in Roadside Monument together, and Matt was in Blenderhead and Don't Know and a bunch of other um, bands on Tooth & Nail, but... Um, we started a band called Raft of Dead Monkeys, like Raft, a boat, a R A F T. Right. There was a film that was there is controversial. A film. Right. Um, nobody's really. A few people have seen it. As far as I know, it's only showed once publicly, and that was in Austin. Right. Yeah, at the Austin Film Forum. Right. And I, I think that they applied for festivals this year. Like he just finished it this year. It's Isn't there really like random it's a trip. clips of YouTube on it on on YouTube of it. There's there's a um, a trailer. Oh, maybe that's. And they might have posted sections of the film. I mean, the film's good in a way that you can actually pull out a lot of little sections of it. Uh It's not really a documentary, but it kind of is. It's like a documentary slash art film. It's very strange. So (laughs) the and I don't think 
strange in a bad way. I actually like it, but like in a song remains the same Led Zeppelin kind of way. Or? Um, no, it's different. So they interviewed all of us in the band and a few okay. of our friends and stuff who were around at that time. So it's based on our storytelling and our narrative, but the person who made it wasn't there, just found out about us and was fascinated in an obsessive kind of way with us right. for a while. And not a Christian guy. Um, no, but it, he had backgrounds in Catholicism and in some evangelical circles, both in his life. He was from the Midwest. He was living in Austin at that time when he contacted me. And he's very interesting. So he he's interpreting our stories the way he wants to interpret it through his lens and the things that he found interesting. And he's highlighting multiple complexities in our story and sort of then what he does. So he doesn't twist our words as much as he crafts it to go in some different directions that we might not have connected the dots. And then he takes some of those. There's three things going on. There's us talking. Then there's these recreations that he did with actors that are dressed like some of the performance art stuff that we used to do Uh in the band. So each one sort of actor sort of represents one of us. But in the credits at the end, they're all saints. And at the end of each montage that they represent us, it shows a different character posed in in like a famous iconic icon picture. Oh, like, really? like So they are saints sort of become. And the thread of the narrative is one of Christian mysticism. And he basically calls us Christian mystics in this weird way. But then the other thing, the third thing going on that's less surreal and... Because those scenes are like nightmare scenes almost. I mean, they're they're really weird. There's one where there's a gal wearing a tooth and nail shirt and she's giving birth. And there's, we used to have um, some of our friends and my wife was part of it. And these other gals would um, dress up as dead nurses when we'd play. And they'd like hold signs and just stand there with blank faces of like switchblades or machine guns. (laughs) It was totally random. And we had some reasons for it, but... um, So these nurses are standing there with like syringes squirting and this woman's giving birth and all of a sudden it cuts to, it literally cuts to a, a birth shot of a vagina for like two seconds. And then you see this, there's a, there's literally a small person, um, a midget or a dwarf, I don't really know, no, with a right. monkey mask slithering on the floor. So she, oh, she was wearing a tooth and nail shirt, so right. another tooth and nail gives birth to a Monkey, which is us, apparently. <laughs> oh, so it's go. it's these weird art, hyper hyperbolic, right. like strange metaphor type things like that throughout the film right. that aren't actually real, but or and that's not even the case. But he's <laughs> that to, it wasn't Tooth and Nail's fault that Raft of Dead Monkeys existed. We were friends and right. had these concept ideas, and we were just screwing around having fun because we love playing music, and we were kind of done with our serious bands. And it was more of a joke when we started to do all this art stuff and and make fun of things because we did. We had ridiculous songs like "Kill the Motherfucker for the Sake of Shit," <laughs> "Vancouver Before Christ," um, <laughs> "United States of Kiss My Ass." Right. We're going to fight the CIA, which was funny because it, it basically says we're going to fight the CIA, we're going to fight the NBA, and it makes up every other three-letter acronym. That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't make any the sense. The FBI. Yeah. yeah. Just, just ridiculous things that... that uh, do you know the yeah. guy that owns Tooth & Nail Records? Yeah, I do. Yeah. What's his name? Brandon Ebel. That's right, yeah. Brandon yeah. Ebel. So, he I, hasn't seen the film, but 
The one, the one other thing in that film is that it's a journey for him. So he's writing letters to his ex-wife and uh-huh. she's reading them as there's like montage scenes of the country he's driving through or the city of Seattle or other things. So there's three things going on all meshed together to make this one narrative about paradoxical things in evangelical Christianity right. and a, a mystical quality to it. That's basically what that's, it's about. That's the less whole about the band. monkeys right there. Yeah, it's in the, the name of the You're movies. always asked about that, so I thought yeah. I would bring it up. Thank you. The name, <laughs> the name of the movie is called The Complete History of Seattle. Uh, <laughs> that is, the, <laughs> that is great. Yeah. So Brandon E. Wolf, here's, here's something, a, a fun fact. So I do Uber and Lyft for a living now. It's yeah. my, how I pay my bills majorly. Okay. And I gave Brandon a ride in my Uber. Wow. And I didn't realize it until I almost dropped him off. So I drop him off. I pick him up at his home in, in uh, Magnolia. And I drive him all the way to, to Bellevue. And almost like a, a few miles before we arrive at his destination, I brought up... We were talking about Uber and Lyft a lot mm-hmm. during the ride and how... Uber and Lyft are this this new emerging technology that's beat out the taxi cabs, right? Yeah. Like these old taxi cabs are old, Uber and Lyft is new. That's kind of how the world works, yeah. right? And then I brought up Taylor Swift and Spotify <laughs> yeah. and the record industry, you know? Like here's Taylor. Poor Taylor only makes like half a million dollars a yeah, month on her online catalog, <laughs> you know? And uh, and he said and he said something to the effect of... Um, like he sells real estate now, and he still does tooth and nail records, but he can't make a living at at tooth and nail yeah. a- anymore as the as the owner of that record company, which yeah. I found fascinating. And then I'm like, oh my god, you're like a celebrity, dude! I've, yeah. I've heard of you. You know, you're you're yeah. in my Uber, and then he's like, yep, here's my destination, and he got out. But uh, yeah, he seems like a really interesting guy, and he's still involved in the music scene in Seattle. I don't know him very well anymore. So oh, yeah. my wife used to work there; she did A and R. Back in the day, so and and then I was in a band on the label, so we were always down and around and around Brandon. But I, right. you know, it's been years. Yeah, so but, I don't know. Yeah, he's a nice guy. So you were also a pastor at uh, at the infamous Mars Hill Church yep. in Seattle uh, in the early days. I mean, you no, were... I wasn't a pastor there. I went there from like '97 till. Whenever I left, like 2013, but they... Okay. Um, but you were never a pastor. I was a pastor the last two years. I was oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was on staff from in 99 till about 2002 when our daughter was born. Well, it actually, I left 2003 was when it ended, but I got off, laid off. And it went like this. It went like, we had a... Um, my wife just quit her job in August. We closed on a new house in August. Our first daughter was born in September, and in October I was laid off. So um, that's sort of how it went. And uh, I was given till the end of the year to finish up stuff. So I had a few months. And then they gave me like three months severance. So they, they were more than gracious for job-wise. But I had thought that a church would take care of me more. And so I had to deal with... I stayed because of my um, connection with um, all the people that I... I mean, I played music there and all sorts of stuff. I was in a band called Team Strike Force that was at Mars Hill for like 10 years. Yeah, I and remember we, that. Yeah, and so we... Um, I had so many close friends. My whole... Everything that I had a lot of identity and worth and value in and friendship and relationship was there. So there was no reason to leave. Even though at the time I thought that the leadership was were jerks. Like I actually thought that. I thought 
This doesn't make any sense. You're supposed to be the church and take care of your own. They know what happened to me. Why didn't they just transfer me and figure something out? And it was really hard. I worked through that over a number of years and then ended up at Morris Hill downtown with Tim Gatos for a long time. Right. He had asked me to help him plant that. And I said, hell no. <laughs> and then he, uh, he, uh, I, I think God was pulling on my heartstrings in such a way that I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to call him and tell him yes. So a couple of weeks later I said, okay, I'm in. And then by that time I had, I wasn't even serving at church anymore. I was, uh, Teresa was doing leading redemption groups and I'd stay home with the kids. We had two then by then. And, uh, so it was 2005 by this time or, or seven or eight, probably seven or eight. Yeah. I don't remember whenever Marshall downtown started, but, um, maybe 2006. Anyways, the, uh, um, I started there. We got along really well in a lot of ways and it had a different dynamic than some of the stuff, even though I started seeing more and more of the, you know, there was more and more layoffs constantly and more and more people being sort of used to, um, push things forward and the dynamic of folks who really wanted to get things done. And I'm just not wired that way. I'm not much a kicking ass for anybody right. by accomplishing tasks. Right. I'm much more of a relationally oriented guy, which to me seems like that's a, would be a decent pastoral quality. And so there, Tim actually related to that in a lot of ways and helped. And so eventually under him, under Tim Gatos, Will Little and, um, Dave Kraft, I went through eldership and went through that and at that time was it was it was great a lot of things had changed in my life I felt like um even about some of the sexual addiction stuff you know I felt that that was like in a different place than it had been and I wasn't really experiencing um you know turning to porn and masturbation for a season for a long season during that time so right. it felt like something miraculous and there was something different and um so yeah, I was I was there, and I, I was a deacon for many many years in various forms. Obviously, there was that time that I wasn't serving the church for a while, but um, before that and after that, <laughs> was right. pretty much always doing something. So much that I ended up. What Tim and I did was we found sort of a way through their job metrics because they actually had a spreadsheet that said each church when they had this amount of people and this amount of money coming in could have this particular job, and they had. You know, like one would be the lead pastor, the, the, um, whatever they were called, the administrative person that was at the campus that was also another like administrative pastor or executive pastor or something like that. And then a worship pastor and like the jobs would get down. And then eventually right. there was the biblical living director, I think after the worship guy. So everything was more face forward and more about the Sunday service than it was about the life and health of the people. Right. And, um, it's kind of a corporate sort of a model. Yeah, totally. Right? So they'd have that, but nowhere on there did they have like flexibility for other job roles or positions. Um, so we created one. Basically I started raising support through an organization called Reliant at the time they were called great commission ministries. So I could basically be a missionary in the city of Seattle and my duties would be pastor at Mars Hill and then we wanted an arts pastor. So I basically started an arts nonprofit that I'm still um, a part of today called Artist Reformation. And it's changed a lot since those days. But um, 
that was sort of the loophole that we found at Mars Hill to have an arts pastor or culture care sort of person at the Mars Hill downtown location. Right. And so when... <laughs> when it was what year was this about that time? Um, well, that was downtown. So that, that was, was probably 2007, downtown. 2006. Yeah, it was... I, became, I left Mars Hill at the end of 2013 and was actually a pastor probably about 2011, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, so this would have been 2000 nine maybe nine or ten is when i started the nonprofit. yeah was that you i ran that that's when i worked for mars hill from 99 to 2002 okay i ran the paradox yeah right right. it was an all-ages music venue there was they actually talk about this in the um raft of dead monkeys documentary they talk about the uh teen dance ordinance that existed here in seattle that made it pretty much impossible for all-ages music venues to run without some exorbitantly huge insurance costs. Right. Um, Rock Candy had closed down at that time, which was one of the only ones. And I know the gal who ran it and she didn't make any money. Um, right. That was an all ages club. Her, yeah, it cost her so much in insurance costs that yeah, she could barely... So she basically was... She, she was given a bad name because of the large ticket prices, but she had to charge large ticket prices for all ages shows. Right. Because punk rock had sort of an ethic where you have like eight dollar tickets or like five dollar tickets or something. At yeah, the yeah, time. yeah. But um, she just punk couldn't. Rock kids don't got no money. Yeah, but it but it <laughs> costs too much to do those things and for her to make any living and for the bands and it's a lot of work to promote an event so she oh, should yeah. definitely have gotten paid what she's worth. So, but at the time she ended up closing that down. And then um, there was a place called the Velvet Elvis Arts Theater downtown that I volunteered at. And it was an arts theater that had this Jack Kerouac, one-man Jack Kerouac play, playing for years there. But every time that they weren't, I think the Kerouac play might have played, you know, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday or something. Maybe Sunday night. So it played like three or four days a week. And the rest of the time, we would do all-ages music shows in the evening there. And it would be a 50-50 split. Um, between the artists and the and the venue, and I volunteered there, and so that kept vibrant. But that had closed down, so there was nothing in the city of Seattle. And Mars Hill came in, wanted to do this all ages thing. They, I think, they just thought it would be cool, and they didn't really want to deal with having a liquor licenses or stuff. But so whatever yeah, you know, reason uh, that in the church, and yeah, then, yeah, and yeah, then the whole weird. church thing is cool. Yeah. But that got there was a so there was an article in. And this is letting listeners in on on a little bit of uh, of Jeff's story as well. Um, your influence in the city at that time, and and some of the stuff that you were involved in. I mean, they were talking about a stranger wrote an article. Some of that got picked up and sent around. I mean, nationwide yeah. and in Christian, like it just it wasn't just a Christian thing. This affected music in Seattle because it affected music in Seattle yeah. for sure because we had a place had for kids, kids under twenty one yeah. to listen to music and arts. Yeah. If you look at the arts, a lot of folks um, get a lot of creative talent before they're twenty one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys created that that space. Yeah, we were the only place in Seattle that could do. All ages shows at a venue. I mean, there was lots of people, and we did it too, like doing house shows and ad hoc things and warehouses and all sorts of stuff. Right. And it wasn't just Christian music either, was it? Oh, no, we didn't. <laughs> wasn't at like... the Paradox, we didn't do Christian music. We did sometimes if somebody that we thought was interesting was coming through town and they asked us, but no, we weren't looking for any of the, We just did regular. I mean, we had. Right. And you had guys that signed. Death Cap for Cutie and... played there. Oh, um, right. Blood Brothers played there a bunch. Um, Bright Eyes played their first shows in Seattle there. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of stuff at the time that played there. Um, and, and some of them went on to become 
notorious or famous or popular, um, and some didn't. The venue itself was an old theater, and it was great space. So it was mostly known that uh, as the Paradox, and on Sunday, a church met there. Right. But people knew that Marcel ran it, but we didn't have... Marcel did not have the bad reputation. It actually had a good reputation. In some ways, <coughs> after leaving Marcel, I feel like I was actually taken advantage of in some ways, like for my... The credibility that I had in the city yeah, was sort of used, especially since as soon as I was irrelevant to their their programming and building, they didn't even try to like, you know, integrate me in any other ways. And I still stayed. Like yeah. I, I cared about my friends. I cared about people and relationships. And so looking back, it's like a it, it creeps me out the the fact that I stayed so long and was was part of a system of abuse towards people that was just heavy handed in taking advantage of people's time and money basically to build somebody a platform, you know, to, it's kind of sad, but anybody could get duped like that. It's, it's complicated in its story and in my story, it's complicated and it had a lot of good, you know, it was nice in that time period to have somebody sort of heavy handed challenging you to quote, be a man, which was essentially just right. to own your own shit, basically. Yeah. Um, which I would challenge people to do now. People to own their own shit. Not. Right. I don't think I don't think the gender rules that Marcel promulgated are anything biblical at all. I think that they're just some fabricated farce by somebody who it reads and interprets things that way right. at this point in my life. But, um, and it, you know, makes good control for people. Yeah. Like it's a kind of an easy way to solve problems in a sort of weird ultra, I hate to use these, these labels, but kind of ultra conservative yeah. sort of approach that you would find in, yeah. in like South Carolina or something. No offense to you guys in South Carolina, but totally. the Bible belt sort of gender roles, you know, yeah. and some of that stuff is is damaging to people, and that's really one of the yeah. that's one of the, the passions for doing this podcast is that the proof of some of that damage is coming out in the form of of sexual compulsive behavior that people try and keep in the dark until their spouse finds out, or they're busted in an affair, or they confess an affair, yeah. or you know their compulsive porn habit goes really dark and the cops show up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these things are in this this conversation about gender roles and culture. Um, I think there's many ways that it doesn't honor being made in the image of God, male and female. Like, I have certain amount of chromosomes and other people have, you know, what is it? What Which one's the one chromosome that women have and men don't? I can't remember. There's X, X and Y. y. Yeah, yeah, so one of them. One of those. Yeah, and, and that's just a biological thing of how we're created. Right. We're created in the image of God with X and Y chromosomes. Right. Like, there's something to the science of that that you don't, you can't really argue with. Gender is a whole never, another thing than biology. Like, that's pretty complicated in a lot of ways because, you know, there's a lot of people who don't identify with their biology. Uh-huh. I don't know what to do with that, but certainly um, over time as that becomes more of a thing, I'm sure that science will show some stuff, psychology will show some stuff, um, 
religion always thinks it has an answer, but it doesn't make anybody who's transgender any less human. Yeah. It makes their life more complicated is what I think it does. It does. Than, than somebody who's not in, a, in certain areas that I know nothing about as a white heterosexual man. Right. I have privilege. I have... Um, Thing, even if on my worst days and my poorest days, right? I'm still a, I'm still a white man in America. Yeah. There's a certain element that of of shit that of I just don't have to we, deal with that exactly. other people do yeah. in the world and and other people in my neighborhood that are oppressed because of their skin color in ways that aren't usually overt. We live in a progressive city. Yeah. But there's still certain attitudes and prejudices that exist in in weird ways that I'm just finding out about, and all that stuff is complicated. But the the things around Morris Hill and gender, gender stuff, I know it confused. There was a lot of shame around practicing proper sex and, and mm. sexuality. Yeah. And I don't think that's healthy at all. No. Um, when you say proper, one of the things... Proper with quotation marks is right, somebody exactly. else's version of somebody proper. Somebody else's version of proper, absolutely. Yeah, and, and even if it's exegeted... Biblically, in such a way, it doesn't alleviate the complexities of humanity and desire, and it doesn't treat the. It treats people who are outside of that paradigm as other, right. and I don't think that's what Christ would have for us, and I don't think it's healthy. All right. Yeah. So. True. And I, some of the stuff that Mark brought up in real marriage, some of it I found positive, mm-hmm. and some of it I found. Yeah, I got questions, yeah, right? Yeah. I wanted to interview, talk with Mark a couple of times about a couple of books that mm-hmm. he wrote. He would never come on the podcast, yeah. even though some of the other other pastors at the time did, for okay. whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I get what you're saying, that, that uh, the gender roles and how... It, one thing he did in, in real marriage was he went to a place and talked about sexuality in a place that no other pastor did. Yeah, people right. liked the candidness that he had yeah. and the ability to make things that were taboo put on the table for discussion. I actually do think that it's okay to talk about things openly and honestly yeah. and be candid. I think that's good. I think it's also better to be um, not so crass, maybe, and more helpful than prescriptive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, True. And listening to other people's stories. Totally. So going back to the transgendered thing, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm doing this podcast over the years. I've heard, I mean, I had one way of thinking in the beginning mm-hmm. that kind of got totally changed. I'll use that word. Yeah. By listening you can to say people transformed. and transformed. There's like <laughs> that's a better word. Um, but so people, here's one of the criticisms. Sometimes I, I say something and I know that there's, there's conservatives or there's people that I really do want to talk to and I really do want to reach, but they'll, they'll come up with these little judgments and they'll think things like, like the gay issue, for example, they'll say, well, the reason why, and they'll put me in a box like, okay, you're, uh, uh, you're pro gay or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it's just, and it's not that I've, I've changed that. And I didn't start the podcast saying I was against gay people ever. Yeah. But um, as a matter of fact, I got a lot of flack for saying, uh, you know, if you've ever been divorced, if you want to go, if you want to go rules, if you want to go, yeah. this is sin and that's not sin. If you've ever been divorced, you're in the same camp as the gay. Yeah, totally. He's married to a man. So that's biblical. Right? Yeah. You're just, you're just, it's a different form of uh, whatever okay. the, what the rules are. When you hear people's stories, when you hear people struggle, when you know that you start to realize that, hey, you know, 
one of the things about me and my kind of deconstruct, reconstruct from before Mars Hill was my porn addiction and the fact that I, when I talk, I talked to a few pastors about it before because mm-hmm. it had been an issue and they didn't really know how to handle it, you know, yeah. and I know how that feels and the transgendered people like you just, people do not realize. I heard a story, um, this woman who felt like when she was seven years old, waiting for her penis to grow in, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and she didn't realize just the shame that she felt until she was a teenager and until she realized that, you know, this is, she read a book by a guy that talked about um, invisible limb, limb syndrome that happens oh, yeah, with yeah, like, yeah. people in okay. war who lose a hand or an arm yeah. or a leg. Um, some people are born with male brains and female bodies or verse visa. And that's some of what she was experiencing. It was wow. real, you know, and I heard yeah. her story like, she, you know, I'm just like, uh, crying for this this woman who went through all this struggle. No, everybody's judging her. Everyone's calling her names and stuff. And and uh, you know, I I feel for those folks. There's just a lot of stuff we yeah. don't know about what goes on behind the eyes of other people. Totally. We had a trans man living here for a little bit. Um, well, maybe like a month. It was a friend of one of our housemates, and um, he was great. I. I really hit it off and it was really cool to um have somebody in our house that had gone through some of that stuff and have some conversations and you know we brought him we were doing this we went to this arts conference that weekend at bethany church and we brought him and jars of clay played and they did an amazing set that um brought me to tears actually and i didn't i wasn't familiar with that band very much i just had heard they had a hit song and were a christian band but they did a worship set that was beautiful and and he too was in tears and you know, I'm pretty pretty sure that he likes the narrative of Jesus Christ being the incarnate God and wanted to embrace it. It seemed like it at the time, and I haven't talked to him for a while, but it wasn't. it's not an issue to me that he's no less human than I am, no yeah. matter what. And there's no... God can deal with our complexities just fine, and he's already dealt with our sin on the cross. So there's no reason... There should not... Like, when you're feeling shame and guilt about something... Um, there's a healthy amount, right? If it hurts other people, definitely like stop what you're doing. And if if it's not, sometimes I, I'd question like, what is it that you're actually experiencing and feeling like in your body, in your mind? Yeah. Like where is that going, and how is that connected to life and and things? This was one of the answers that church never. They tried to always solve, or I shouldn't say church. I should say evangelical Christians in their programs around addiction, <laughs> yeah. in particular. Um, <clears throat> which I think can be really helpful. I went through one called Men's Purity, uh-huh. and it was it was Marcel did it before they did Redemption Groups. There was a guy there who who ran this Men's Purity group, and I think it was the book was written by somebody in Oregon and stuff. But it was it was really helpful, and it did a lot of twelve step kind of things. It was helpful for many reasons, but for some it wasn't because some people took it as a formula to get better. I never took it that way. I always took it as like I got to own my own shit here and. This is just some ways to sort of think about it in a new new terms and get some stuff fresh and think about how I'm hurting others. And, you know, it was helpful. It was helpful to have sort of that accountability. And I don't know that it's necessary for everybody to have, oh, I'm feeling like I'm going to slip. I need to call somebody. But I think it's really helpful at times for different people. And it's not a bad a bad idea to do. Does it work long term? I don't know. It didn't in my case. But... Right. um 
the principles are, are good and helpful in life. Yeah, in there's general. a place for that behavior yeah. modification. Yeah, totally. And it, it, it there is a place to it's a starting line, you know, yeah. and it's a realization yeah. to to where a person's at. And even the redemption group models, I mean, I still help um, with those. <clears throat> we change the the dynamic of those quite a bit that are, are a lot more gentle than the experiences at Mars Hill were pretty heavy handed, but that was more of the Mars Hill culture than what it, what, um, other redemption groups and other churches were doing. So the idea is essentially this, it's, it's like show people over and over that God loves them no matter what, mm-hmm. just like in the book of Exodus, God pursues, God rescues, God redeems, you grumble. You bitch and complain about the food you're getting that's miraculous <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. And he still pursues you and he still loves you. That's the idea of redemption groups. It's remind people sort of of the grace of God out of their shame. Like they don't have to experience that horribly condemning shame. And so now it's an interesting dynamic. Now if I I can admit things like I'm a heterosexual white man and I really do like think nude women are beautiful. I do. Right. I can't deny that. Like right. that's true. I find something beautiful about the way that God made human beings in general. I mean, I, I can find the human men, God. but sexually beautiful in a in a way that is good and healthy, and in a way that can be terribly exploitative and horribly selfish mm-hmm. and abusive towards another human being. I find that usually in 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 a give and take, pull and pull kind of thing in. Um, Things like pornography, you know, there, there's there's a any sort of image that's exploitative is much different than when I see like I can I can see a naked woman and be fine. Well, at the same time, sometimes I can't. Like it just sort of depends. And some people have those rules about staying away. I think the worst is usually when it's meant for arousal because they do things on purpose to. Um, yeah. And the worst thing about in my opinion, what's considered pornographic. I'm not, I'm not probably going to get super aroused from just images of naked people. It's people having sex. That's like, and that's messed up. Like that's right. supposedly to me with my, my wife, it's like an intimate thing between us. That's like us. This is just us. Nobody else is, is a part of this. And, and you know, we've, I mean, we've been, we were high school sweethearts. So there's a dichotomy there that is really unique. And and there's one of trust, but I tell you this at Mars Hill, we created because of the gender role thing. And especially the ones on, um, women and their submission and the, the ways Mark talked about sex and about women looking good. I believe full heartedly. And I can tell you my experience is we actually created a Christian rape culture and we did within that context because of these things that we <clears throat> used Bible to exegete in such a way, particularly, in my opinion, the way that we exegeted Scripture in such a way that made it seem like if, if a husband was aroused, it was a wife's duty and responsibility as a good Christian to perform. And then he'd say weird stuff too, like if, you know, like about blowjobs and anal sex and all sorts of stuff that... The majority of women I know are quite uncomfortable with right. at least anal sex, and most don't really like like sucking a dick. <laughs> right. it's, not right, like, right. it's not like everybody enjoys that. Yeah, some That's people some of the, do. It's not just Mars Hill too. This is something I've seen in uh, 
the way people interpret uh, it's not right, and Mark would use that a lot, mm -hmm. it's not right to, you know, you should provide sex for your spouse when they're... Yeah, I don't think it means that. Right. I, and there, I mean, there's a, it starts with that, and then there's a whole thing at the end that a lot of people like to leave on. Yeah, that was an abrupt end, wasn't it? A cliffhanger. So, yes, uh, subscribe. Uh, part two of my talk with Jeff, we're going to crack open our Bibles and talk about how some folks choose to interpret this piece of scripture. Jeff talked about influencing a kind of Christian rape culture, and those are pretty strong words. But I've seen some of the dangerous, destructive religious approaches to things that pass for purity are sometimes not always pure. And again, I'm not an expert, but doing this podcast on sexual integrity and sexual addiction, sexual compulsive behavior, um, having phone calls from churches to talk to pastors and, you know, to talk to staff in the area of these kinds of issues, I'm no stranger to this stuff. The way some folks interpret treatment by, in most cases, well-meaning, emotionally illiterate people who interpret this, this piece of the Bible horribly, all right? And this is the important part about going after the heart level, like sediment at the bottom of the well, past the clear, pure stuff that we see on the surface. See, there's a way of interpreting 1 Corinthians 7 that gets down to the roots of this thing, rather than just looking at your spouse like methadone or something like that, right? The Bible isn't interpreting that piece of scripture that way, but some have used it as a way to help porn addicts because their wife should be giving it up if they're really Christian woman, um, giving, right? Supplying the need to the man. Um, is that what that verse is saying? It's been interpreted by folks as... Oh, horrible ways alright so we're going to get into that on the next podcast please subscribe and thanks for listening this is Russia out sweet dreams ASI is a listener-supported podcast. Sponsors to the show do not necessarily stamp a endorsement on myself, ASI.com, or the things I might say here. I, Russ Shaw of DigitalAudioProject.com, am solely responsible for its content.